Our first week of the month, we've been doing an Old Testament book, and we're in Ecclesiastes. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, I, I really love the book because in it you have the wisest mere man who ever lived, Solomon, looking at all the things of the world and the things the world has to offer, and he finds it all to be vanity. This world is passing away. It has nothing for us. And it's really the antidote to the worldliness that so many of us have in our hearts. Today we'll be in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. We did the first 15 verses last month. And we'll be doing the last portion, 16 through 22 today. But I want to read the whole chapter because it's all tied together. He's talking in the section we're looking at today about justice. And that's becoming quite a hot topic in our day and age, is it not? We have the so-called social justice, which is the new racism. We have people talking about socialism being justice, how those who work hard and earn something should give to those who refuse to work. We have a justice that says you can speak no evil about other people's preferences, no matter how sinful the Bible says they are. And it is unjust for you to do that, and it is just for us to stop you. We see the laws of our land and the judiciate. You know, first they accept evil, then they start to protect evil, and then they require evil. And in this state, we know a young police officer, he just graduated from weed. They passed a new law requiring teachers and law enforcement officers to basically accept homosexuality and not to speak against them. And on his Facebook page, he had spoken against you know, giving children to same-sex couples to raise. And so he was fired because he had broken the law. And we're seeing that more and more even in our own country. And for many of us as Christians, we get fired up by these things. There are some Christians who want to, you know, they have their eschatology of victory. And we must take over the world and make the world Christian, take over the government. And on the other end, you have people who give up. And well, if the law requires that, then it's fine. I'll bow my knee to it. Solomon, in this passage, talks about the vanity of those things. And so as we read through this, think about our problems with justice and our desire for justice and where that is leading us. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I'll read the whole thing and then we'll start looking at verse 16. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. 
a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toils. This is the gift of God to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people will fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for the time, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so the other dies. They all have the same breath, <clears throat> and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, and are from the dust, and to dust they return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw, <clears throat> so that I saw that there is nothing better than for a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the wisdom of your word. And we pray as we struggle to understand this Hebrew poetry of Ecclesiastes, that you would open our hearts to hear the message you have for us to receive the encouragement that message can bring us and to transform our lives and our thinking and our deeds according to what is revealed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off, I saw under the sun in the place of justice. Now, we've talked about under the sun. Under the sun is reference to what happens in the world and really Solomon uses that to contrast the world apart from what God is doing with the, world, with the heavenly kingdom. And what is done under the sun is all of the things we're doing in our life, generally all the things we're doing for ourselves, but all the things we're living for ourselves. And so under the sun, meaning in this world, the place of righteousness and the place of justice. What is the place of justice where the judge adjudicates the law. The place of righteousness, many people take it to be the same place, but it would be any place you would expect there to be righteousness. I would include the temple in that. God's condemnations in the prophets often include the priests in the temple as being unjust. 
not just the gate where things were judged by the, by the people, the leaders. And he says in those places there's injustice. And we, we the godly, grieve over that injustice. We don't like to see people wronged. We don't like to see the wicked get free and prosper and the innocent be punished. I remember being taught when I was a child in school that one of the reasons our justice system favors the criminal, the accused, is because it's better to let 10 guilty men go free than put one innocent man in jail. I think we've long since lost sight of that. And for every 10 guilty men we let go, we put an innocent man in jail deliberately. I think is more the way America has gone, sadly. But there's more and more injustice. And if you lead through the history of Israel, you know, you have a great, in the book of Grudges, you have a great judge, then you have apostasy. Well, what do you think the judges were doing during the apostasy? They were doing injustice. Even in the time of the kings, in fact, the prophets who write against the kings speak almost every time about the injustice of the society. It's a terrible state to be. Solomon starts the book off of Ecclesiastes saying, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to search, seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it is an unhappy business that God has given the children of men to be busy with. I see that everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all vanity, a striving after the wind. And he is including in this the justice and injustice of men. The later prophets, as I mentioned, really denounce this often. Justice was quickly subverted and perverted. Why? Because the judges were men. And all men are corrupt in their hearts from, from birth. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We come, as David says, from the womb, corrupted in speaking lies. We call that original sin, that we have the taint of Adam's corruption because of Adam's fall. All of his posterity share in his corrupted nature because we get that through him as our, our head, our, our first man. And we'll come to that in a minute, some more. Uh, it, it got to the point where justice seemed to be impossible and injustice was all people could expect from the courts and the law. God says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor, Leviticus 19.15. It's interesting that he starts by saying you shall not be partial to the poor. The courts today are very partial to the poor. Oh, you know, it's because you're living in poverty that you did this and therefore it is okay. And they're let go more often than not. I remember in college, my friend beat up a car thief who he caught stealing his car and sat on him till the police came and he was arrested. And when he spoke to the assistant DA who was prosecuting the case, he was told, this man is out on 15 concurrent Suspended sentences for car theft. You, what you did to him is the, worst, the most justice he will ever see in his life. Down in L.A., they're now letting people out on bail for zero dollars for everything that isn't a violent crime. Justice has slipped away from our nation. And we are partial to the poor. It also says you shall not defer to the great. Now, how many politicians today have gotten in trouble for corruption 
And the FBI has given immunity to all the witnesses and drilled holes in all the hard drives to destroy the evidence. Yeah. We do that because of their greatness. Justice has really been lost in the world. Micah says of the House of Israel, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. Micah 7.3. This isn't something new. There is nothing new under the sun as, <laughs> as we learn in Ecclesiastes. Everything that happens has happened before. You know, we might put a slightly different twist on the corruption and the perversion of the day, but it is all the same. And we may be tempted to give up. Remember the parable of the unjust judge? Jesus says something that the unjust judge would say. He says, the unjust judge says, I neither fear God nor respect man. And that is really where injustice comes from. Part of it, yes, is our corruption, but part of it is we don't fear God as a people, as a nation. And we don't respect people. We do what we think is right. We follow the philosophies that came out of the Enlightenment and the modernism and the postmodernism. We'll talk about that a little more when we get to it. But we, we struggle with this injustice of our world and of our lives and of our nation. It's nothing new. That's how justice works in the world. But how about justice in God? Isaiah prophesies that the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze in their pasture and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Isaiah 5, 16-21. That is describing the injustice in the people, the leaders of his day and the people of his days. The leaders don't get away with injustice if the people don't allow it. There hasn't been a society that has been strong enough for that. And those who have tried it, think of Marxism, there have been uprisings against them. And many of the regimes have fallen or been crippled because the people won't stand for it. Going back to the parable of the unjust judge, the unjust judge said, Yet this widow keeps bothering me, so I will give her justice so that she will not bear me down by her continual coming. Yes, we can have an impact even on the unjust judge. But hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Luke 18, 5 through 8. Man judges according to his own desires, his own wants. The Lord sits enthroned forever. 
He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Psalm 9, 7, and 8. God's justice will not be like the world's justice. We can hope in his justice. We can hope in what he will do when he comes to judge the world. Remember Solomon's conclusion to this whole book. That's really the key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. We've talked before about how Many people despise the book as the ravings of a depressed man. No, all scripture is God-breathed. This is what God has said to us. And the point he's making through all of this book is summed up in the last verses. Chapter 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is how he wraps up his thoughts on his examination of everything done under the sun in the world. It's better than all the things the world has to offer to obey God, submit to God, and please God. Verse 17, there is a time for everything. We read that just a moment ago. Time to be born, a time to die. Well, apparently... There's a time for God's justice, and that is to come. This is the day of mercy. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 45, that he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. They get the same blessings as everyone else. God is merciful to them, but he has promised a great and terrible day of judgment. We spoke of that at length when we were in the book of First and Second Thessalonians. The great and terrible day of the Lord will come. He will punish all his enemies and bring justice to everyone. Thank God that Christ has paid the price for our sins. I would not want to be on the wrong side on that day. Peter says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, come count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the day of his mercy, the day of his patience. The word is going out, as we saw in uh, 2 Corinthians a few months, a few weeks or a few months back, that you know, we should not give up this day, this opportunity, this grace that we have received to hear the word and believe the word. It is that day of his mercy, the day that he will hear us and accept us. The day when God judges the world in perfect justice, though, will come. And that is what Solomon is speaking of here. The justice of the Lord will come. Now, the next session is very hard for people to understand. And if you take it out of context, you can make it mean the wrong thing. It says that God is testing the sons of Adam. Now, that's a little literal translation. The ESV had children of man. And while it's not a big point in this passage, they do that a lot. The modern translations try to accommodate the modern culture that wants a gender-neutral Bible. And it's not a big deal here, but if we think about it, it is important for us to remember. The inheritance was through the son. Men were the head of the house. This is God's practical representation, his teaching about our relationship with him. We need to think of it, many people think of it as the dated male chauvinism chauvinism and misogamy of the Bible. And they hate the Bible for this concept. 
But what's going on here is God has said, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for as the husband is the head of the wife, so Christ is the head of the church, his body. Now the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands, Ephesians 5, 22 and 24. God has established this order to help us see our relationship with him. It's not about women submitting to men as some kind of men are superior. It's those are the places God has assigned them, and it's representative of our relationship with him. What are we to Christ? We are his bride. We are like the woman in our submission to Christ is within marriage, even though we are men. This is an important concept for us to understand. As a man, if your wife rebels against you, how do you feel? Well, when you're rebelling against God by sinning and walking contrary to his word, that is like how God views it. That's the teaching here. It's not chauvinism, it's not misogamy. Misogamy, by the way, is a man's hatred for women in general. It's a term I wasn't familiar with until I was learning biblical theology. <clears throat> but it, it has to do with our relationship with God and the role that we have. And I think translating the distinction correctly helps us to see these things more clearly as we go through the word. And note that it also says, of Adam. Now, you may not know this, but in Hebrew, the name of the first person God created is Adam. But Adam is the word used throughout the Old Testament for mankind. We are named the same. And so by translating it some places Adam and some places man, we, we kind of lose that train that God is showing us. A really minor nuance, but is relevant here. God is testing the children of Adam. In the children of Adam, we may be brought back to thinking about Adam and his fall and about the corruption of Adam and the corruption of therefore all of his descendants. And that is why I want to translate it, Adam, and call your attention to that. Because what's wrong with judges? They're not perfect, they're fallen. They're not perfect in their holiness. They're not perfect in their goodness, and therefore they often become corrupt. And I think the original translation brings that out. Now, testing of man. Does God need to test us to know our heart? No. What is the testing here? Explicitly, the testing is that they might see that they themselves are but beasts. They themselves, it's an emphatic in the Hebrew in English, it doesn't really work for us sometimes because we have different ways of doing emphatic than they did. But they repeat it. And he repeats it here because that's the purpose. God is testing you not so he knows who you are, but so that you know who you are and that I know who I am. And there are many tests in our life that really, if we look at them rightly, they're showing us where we're coming up short. And that's the purpose of his testing them, that they are no more than beasts. Now, he's not supporting the modern idea of evolution, that we evolved from animals and we're no more than an animal, or the modern philosophical belief that we are just a machine, just an accumulation of parts, random electrical signals in our brain is all we are. Uh, they use that to dehumanize us. We are made in the image of God to knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And that makes us different than the beasts. 
But he, what he's bringing up to us is what happens to man happens to beasts the same way. What is that? Well, we suffer injury. We suffer sickness. We suffer pain and frustration. And what was the curse upon Adam? You'll work the land and it will produce for you perfect fruit. No, briars and thorns. You know, the animals suffer with the same thing. All of creation is groaning because of this corruption of the world. The man and beast, they suffer the same thing. And in the end, it's pointed all to die once. We die. And what happens when we die? Our bodies go down to the grave. We return to the earth. We'll get to that in just a moment. But how do we understand this passage? In, in light of its own context, we know what he is talking about, that he's talking about our, our corruption, our injustice. And in chapter 12, verse 7, speaking of man's death, he says, dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, sometimes people get confused about this passage and think all we are is an animal, we go to the grave, you know, evolution is right, modern philosophical worldview that says we are just electrical impulses is right. That's definitely not his opinion because he says that the spirit returns to God in chapter 12. And so you might understand that, well, then there is a big difference between the beast and man. If the spirit goes to God and the spirit of the beast does not, the spirit of man does, then there's a great advantage to us. But in verse 19, he asks, what is the advantage we have over the beast, essentially? In verse 20, he says again, we, from dust we came and to dust we will return. Our body returns to dust. We all go to the grave. There are some notable exceptions. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when we go to the grave, we return to dust. Where is Solomon's body today? Can we take out his corpse and look at it? No. He's long since turned to dust. Returned once he came. They didn't have him. Well, they had embalming in his days, but the Jews certainly didn't practice embalming. Their practice was you put the body in the sepulcher and it would turn to bone. You would pile the bones gently and honorably in a corner so that the next body could come in. And over time, the bones would turn to dust. From dust, you were formed, right? The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature, Genesis 2.7. Note there are two parts there. Right? There's the body formed of dust and the spirit. The word breath and spirit are actually the same in most places. It's breath is translated as spirit or breath, the same word in Hebrew. And here that word is the same for spirit. The breath of life was the spirit put into the man. So there are these two parts. But apart from God's judgment, he says, you know, by the sweat of your face you'll eat bread until you return... Return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Dust you were, dust you will become. His judgment in Genesis 3, 19. It brings us to then the soul. The soul is not very clearly stated here because that's really not his purpose. But I do want to touch on that briefly. 
uh, far more briefly than I wrote down because <laughs> I tend to run long. All right. There's a problem. The Old Testament doesn't really talk about the intermediate state much, and it doesn't talk about eternity much. And unbelieving scholars try to twist the scarcity of information to imply that somehow the doctrine of the afterlife was invented later and hadn't been invented yet. And therefore, they can discard the New Testament as your modern ideas and put into the Bible. They want to destroy the credibility of the Bible because the Bible is what God says to us, and if we listen to it, it will transform our lives. We don't believe that. As Christians, we believe that all Scripture really is God-breathed. How then do we handle the fact that the Old Testament has less to say about something than the New? Well, we'll deal with that shortly. We know that all Scripture is God-breathed, so when we want to interpret one passage, we can use what else is taught in the Bible. Uh, Biblical theology is the idea you go through the Bible and you figure out what it's saying and you interpret its theology. Systematic theology is the next step where you then compare that with every other place it talks about the subject and try to make sure you have no discontinuities or no disagreements. And it's resolving those disagreements that helps us to know the truth of what it means. And so when we're interpreting this, we can actually use today the New Testament as well. But let's take a moment to look at the Old Testament. Remember Enoch and Elijah? What was unique about them? They were both translated to heaven. Enoch's story is very brief in the Old Testament. He walked with God and was not, for God took him. But in Hebrews, we learn some more details. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. And before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, Hebrews 11.5. The case of Elijah is a little more clear because it states he was taken up by God to heaven. Right? So when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, 2 Kings 2.1. We know that was where God was taking them, to heaven. They knew about heaven. They knew it was a great place where they wanted to be. And I think they understood this. God has the power to take somebody to heaven when he wants, but also when we die, the soul goes there. Psalm 49 is an interesting psalm. I would read the whole thing, but of course, I would have to be a Puritan preaching for three hours to be allowed to do this, and I tried not to do that. The author is troubled by the prosperity and success of the wicked, but he finds comfort in the fact that this present imbalance between the fortunes of the godly and the ungodly will be set to rights in the afterlife. He clearly believes that kind of reward system. And there are two ideas that we see in the Old Testament, even though it's not as explicitly stated as the New, in the New Testament, like in the New Testament, and that is the continuity of us as a person after death, and particularly with that intimate relationship with God being preserved, and the fact that there will be justice in the afterlife. We will receive the rewards we do not have in this life, and the wicked will receive the punishments they did not get in this life, along with the punishment for their sin in general. Job, who certainly predates Solomon and and Israel, 
knew about the resurrection. A famous passage in Job 19.25-27 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job had that same hope of the resurrection, the same hope of eternity that is so prevalently explained and called upon in the Thessalonian letters. That, you know, you're, yes, you're persecuted now. Yes, you're facing death now. Yes, you've lost your property and your home and your freedom. But God will return. They will receive justice. You will receive the reward. Job had that very same hope. The Old Testament has the same teaching as the New. God is consistent, but some things are more heavily veiled in the Old Testament than others. And this is one of those things. In Isaiah, we actually read the passage that Jesus quotes and uses. Isaiah reveals the future of the dead, Peter and Jesus also speak of these things. He says, for the, in the new heaven and the new earth, this is Isaiah speaking, but 2 Peter 3.13 and Revelation 21.1 say the same thing. In the new heaven and the new earth that I shall make shall remain before me, says the Lord, and your, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From the new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. Jesus says that in Mark 9, 44 to 49 and John in Revelation 14, 10 to 11. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That's Isaiah 66, 22 through 24. Yeah, the teaching is the same. It's just brought into greater focus in the New Testament. Daniel promises, and I won't read him right now, but Daniel promises that there will be a resurrection. Many who sleep in the earth, the, many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 1 and 2. In the New Testament, the teachings of the afterlife and the intermediate state are much more clear than in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is teaching the same thing. What does it all mean? And what does our passage mean? Well, man has, sinful man, godless man, has rejected the knowledge of God. We see that in Romans 1, the second half of the chapter. And they have forsaken the knowledge of God and therefore the knowledge and the truth of justice. And they've turned to act, turned to behave no different than a beast. They have no future hope like a beast. But in fact, in reality, they have torment waiting for them eternally. But from their perspective, from a human perspective, they're no different than beasts. And that's what he's talking about under the sun. If you set aside God and try to live a life without him, you know, how are you any different than a beast? There's no hope of eternity. There's no hope of justice. There's no hope of anything. You behave in the end like a beast. And that is what happens with modern society's philosophy of, you know, man is just a machine. Where does that lead? 
Man, it's just a collection of random signals. Well, the child doesn't have many of those signals yet, so it's okay to kill them in the womb. It's okay now legal to kill them after they're born for a certain amount of time. Euthanasia, it's okay for you to be homeless and want to die or be sick and want to die. To give up hope and commit suicide is now a human right in some areas, in Canada in particular, but parts of America. I think Oregon was the first to put that forward, doctor-assisted suicide. Humanity has no value. One of the things that backs socialism philosophically is the belief that the majority rules, we decide what is right and wrong, which changes all the time, but since that never works because the minority will always oppose it, we have the right as the majority to force the minority to believe what we want them to believe and to do what we want them to do. And that's the great repressions that you have in history. You know, the French socialists, they sent to the guillotine even little children, babies who couldn't even crawl. The Russians, or the Marxists in Germany first, killed the Jews. Why? Well, the Jews were a bad influence. They're, they're, you know, when they, you inherit from their corruption, and since corruption can only be in the flesh, if you allow them to live and to breed, they breed more corruption on the earth. For the Soviets, it was the Cossacks and the Gypsies. For the Chinese, it was anyone who opposed them. I was in Cambodia as a missionary for Pol Pot and his socialists. It was anybody who had lived in a city, and they killed them. That's where it leads if we don't have that view of man as being made in the image of God, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And therefore, even the most physically damaged person, be it from birth defects, genetic defects, or from injuries. There was a time when people who lost a limb in the war were viewed as therefore corrupted and shouldn't be allowed to marry, shouldn't be allowed to have children, because they were ignorant of reality. You know, we get away from that. Such people have value because they are made in God's image and God has given them that value. Without that thinking, if all you think about is what goes on in this world, in this life, and under the sun, as he calls it, materialism, as we call it today, then you lose sight of that and you're nothing but a beast. So what am I trying to say here? Well, how do we understand this? Ecclesiastes 12.7, I read it, is telling us that the soul does return to God. And so when we read this passage, we need to interpret it in light of what Solomon himself is explaining to us. There is a God and there is a place for the soul in reality. So I think we should understand this saying, he asks, who knows this, whether man's soul goes up and a beast goes down? Well, the believer knows this because the Bible teaches it. He's not saying that it's uncertain or unknown. What he's trying to tell us is that the meaning and expression of that meaning are lost on people. You know, the same expression is used in Proverbs 31.10, who can find? Talking about a good wife, but you know, does a good wife not exist? <laughs> now there are good wives out there, right? We know that. Um, Isaiah says, who has believed? Did nobody believe? No. There were some. He's talking about the scarcity or the difficulty of understanding and believing this. Not, he's not nullifying the possibility of believing it or knowing it. 
They know it, but they've rejected it. And the more they reject it, the more dull their darkened their mind becomes and their heart becomes and the less they're able to know it until they don't know it anymore. Romans 1, that whole series. So there will be, there is right and wrong. The judges are corrupt, but their failure to judge honestly does not stop God from judging honestly. And I think all men know in their heart or knew in their heart that there was a judgment to come. But having rejected it, they work hard to sear their conscience, as Roman says, so that they don't have to deal with it any further. Brings us to the conclusion, verse 22. I saw that there was nothing better than for a man to rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what is after him? I think this ties back to verses 9 through 13, where everything is being understood from man's perspective. And his conclusion is in verse 12, you know, it's man to be joyful, to do good as long as they live. Verse 13, to eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil, for this is the gift of God to man. You know, there is the wrong way to live, to enjoy our life and enjoy what God has given us. And there's a right way. And the right way is, you know, think back to the conclusion of the book, fear God, keep his commandments. You know, what is man's chief end? As we say it in our confession, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That being the case, while we are glorifying God, we can enjoy our life. You know, there's nothing more depressing than the false Puritan who's everything is dour and nothing is good. You know, I have no happiness in my life. There is no joy, only the Lord. No, the Lord is joy for us. And what little he gives us or what much he gives us, we can enjoy it as long as we are enjoying it in the Lord. I was listening to your book this week in my morning walk, and the author kept talking about the compassionate use of wealth. <laughs> He's a Christian author. And what he meant by that is, you know, when God has given us, we can enjoy that, but we share that joy by helping God's people as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. Think of Job, you know, the richest man in the world in his day, and yet he was the most righteous. You know, think of Abraham, one man who was as wealthy as a nation and as big as the nations around him. You know, there's nothing wrong with wealth. It's the way we use it and the way we think about it. And whether we have great wealth or none, we can still find joy in our labor joy in our life under the sun because we have God and we have the promise of eternity. Paul says that if there's no hope in the resurrection, we have hope in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied as Christians. And that's true, but if the poorest of Christian has Christ and has eternity and the promise of you know, a mansion in heaven and rewards for all his suffering and recompense for all his suffering, then he can have great joy in what God has given him. And that's Solomon's point here. You know, we struggle with the justice. We struggle with the injustice of the world. We struggle with the sufferings, the persecutions, the hardships, the sicknesses, the trials we endure. But we have Christ, and he has given us good things too, and we can rejoice in what we have. And that is sufficient. What is vanity? 
all their efforts at injustice is vain. All their efforts to make good evil and evil good is vain. All of their efforts to punish the holy and reward the wicked is vain. God will recompense justice. Those who have suffered injustice will be compensated. Those who have done injustice will be punished. Their efforts are completely and utterly vain. We don't need to get distressed about it. We don't need to get depressed about it. We need to do what God has called us to do. We need to be you know, salt and light in a city on a hill that cannot be hidden and a lamp on its stand. But we do not need to be depressed when things are going south and we don't want it to. Trust the Lord. Trust his plan. Trust his justice to come. And we will have great comfort in our hearts. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the reminder of the vanity of this world. We, Lord, are strangers and pilgrims here. We are looking for a better kingdom, a better life. And while we are here, Lord, teach us and remind us to live our lives for you, for your kingdom, for your glory, for your pleasure. And to find joy in our lot in life, whatever it may be, because we know we have you. We have that hope in us of the future, hope of the resurrection, hope of the final judgment. Encourage us with that thought, Lord, as we face growing injustice and iniquity in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.